All right. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant, remember we're talking about Old Covenant, Old Testament, and New Covenant, even the first covenant at that Old Testament had ordinances of divine services and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot and, that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Those things are inside the, the ark of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim. Uh, and the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went only alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the services perfect in regarding to conscience. Notice that word conscience. I'm going to underline in your Bible. That's a key word here in chapter 9. Cannot make him perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. We are in the time of Reformation right now. Uh, we are in a new order, a new season, a new covenant. Verse 11 says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater <laughs> or better and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is, not of this creation. Jesus is better, and he always comes with better things. Verse 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, which is what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your, there it is again, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant uh, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity of the death of a testator. Well, that's awkward. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Verse 17. We don't use those words much anymore. Hmm. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, I don't think it shows up anymore. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission or cleansing. Therefore, in light of that, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. 
For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have to have suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrificing of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so also Christ offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That's awesome. You guys still awake out there? All right, chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not uh, have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can actually take away sin. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, that's Jesus, behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written about me to do your will. Oh God, that's a key word. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor have pleasure in them, which, by the way, are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, the law, that he may establish the second, the will. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily, often repeating the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected, he has, that's past tense, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. Remember we talked about this last week. I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission or cleansing of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. In other words, when it's taken care of, when it's gone, God doesn't remember it. He doesn't need to remember. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil, there's that word again, conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. <laughs> Not you're faithful. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. What that means is the last days are church days. Some people think that in the last days we're all just going to be like on our own or out there. So, no, we're going to keep meeting. 
We're going to keep getting together. We're going to keep encouraging each other. Isn't it amazing? This is right after the amazing sacrifice of Christ. He goes right into Christian community. Might be a good preaching point there. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of the one who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. Now the just, that's you and me, shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Lord, we thank you for your word and how powerful and potent and, and uh, incredibly relevant it is to us today. It's not only relevant, it's transcendent. <laughs> it lifts us up to a higher plane. It helps us to see things differently. And so change our mindset, change our, our viewpoint, change our thinking today. Adjust the, uh, the, 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 the dials of our, of our mind and help us to see Jesus Christ, help us to see him. This world needs him. We need you. And so we come before you today, and we, we just ask for you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. I spoke to the ladies yesterday, ladies retreat, uh, brunch. Um, how many ladies do we have there? Raise, raise, give, give, give me a shout out if you were there at the, the women's 32. Awesome, 32. Wonderful. That's not counting me, right? Okay, just checking. Um, anyway, um, I, I was speaking to the ladies yesterday, and we, 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 we preached from Psalm 32. 32 ladies, Psalm 32. Come on, somebody. Uh, we preached from Psalm 32, and um, I shared a little uh, a health tidbit with them, and I thought I would share it with you all. It's very, very applicable. It's called the Harry Diet. Um, many people have been asking how I stay slim, and so now I'm going to share my secret with you. Uh, it starts when you're 21. Because for me, that's the first time I gained weight. I was just small all my life. I just I was 135 pounds all my life until I went away to Bible college, in which they start they 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 feed you enormous amount of nasty food, and they feed you early and they feed you often. And so around 10 o'clock, I am hungry again. And so there was also a Domino's next door, and they have some cheesy bread things for five dollars. You get a whole box of cheesy bread with some ranch dressing. It is the anointing in a box. It's, uh, it's Jesus. It's just, he just shows up. And so I like Jesus, and so I wouldn't want to reject him. So I would get, you know, some, some, some anointing in a box, and I would eat that around 10, 11, midnight. And then you sit in class all day. And so I was so unused to my, my weight fluctuating that I was, I, you know, I would go to buy new pants. I was always a size 30, 
And um, I realized that they, they, they started making 30s smaller than they used to. I don't know. You guys have probably never experienced that. But like these, these people that make clothes, I don't know what's up with them. They're kind of crazy. They just change things up. And so um, I was like, well, I guess I got to get a size 32, you know. And so I start wearing 32 and, and 33. And, and anyway, I gained 30 pounds in my first three months at Bible college. You're supposed to have a freshman 15. I kind of doubled that. And so I go home for Christmas, Christmas break, and some of my friends are like, Harry, you're getting a little, a little pudgy there. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And, uh, and then I stepped on a scale and realized that I'm always 135, but now I'm 165. And that was a wake-up call for me. And so I really don't, I didn't want to give up the anointing um, of the cheese bread and, and all that kind of thing. And when you're 21, you don't really have to do that much. So I instituted a little uh, self-abuse um, known as running. Some of you enjoy this, and we'll pray for you after service. Um, you need to keep all sharp objects. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Running, it's like, it's like um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like torture that you voluntarily do. It's supposed to be a, uh, a flight instinct. It's supposed to be life-saving. In other words, I could die or I could run, in which case you choose running. That's when you run, when you could die. That's when you're supposed to run. God didn't make us to run from place to place to place. I mean, at least he didn't make, I'm too, like, I, I was born in North America. I don't do that, right? I get in a car, I drive, and that's how I get places. And, and all of a sudden, I found that, that running actually does kind of shock your body to get some of the fat. And, and it's, but it's awful. And so I, would, I decided a strict regimen of, of, of running one mile once a week. So on Tuesday nights... This is what everybody laughs about. I, don't, I thought it was pretty good, all right? You got to start somewhere. So once a week, I would run. There's a circle around the campus. And I mean, you, like, you're, you're, you're run, like you're running, and you start feeling nauseous, and you're sweating profusely, and you feel like you're going to faint, and you realize like you've only gone like 100 feet, you know? And it's like, okay, 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 okay. And I'm up in Ohio, so this is in the middle of winter, so you're breathing in icicles, you know, and... And you're just running, and it's, and it's awful. Well, in three months, I lost my 30 pounds, which was pretty amazing. And when you're 21, you can do that. So that's my secret right there, is do that to your body once. And then every time you start to gain weight, like there's been different times where and I have been married, um, I gain sympathy weight, like when she has babies. And so it's just because I love her so much, really. It has nothing to do with sitting around doing nothing and no exercise and bad diet. It has nothing to do with that. It's just sympathy. It's sympathy. And so I would gain sympathy weight, and then I would have to threaten my body. Like, all right, if you don't start getting rid of this fat, like, I'm going to start running. And so it, it freaks my body out. My body, I just start losing weight just because I don't, it's like gets, I don't know what it does with it, where it goes, but somehow it's a good diet plan. Do something drastic, awful, shock it, and then threaten for the rest of your life. You know, I, oh, I'll do it, and I will too. I'll get out there. I'll run around up and down these hills. I'll just, just watch that. And so, you know, it's, it's this kind of my, it's, it's, that's currently my diet, diet plan at age 35. It's working. Um, hopefully, when I hit 40, it keeps working. I don't know. Uh, I'll let you know as we go along. But, but that's, I, I was thinking about that this past, obviously yesterday, I was sharing that with, with the ladies, and it was applicable somehow to Psalm 32. I don't really remember. But um, I was sharing that, and, I, and, and then it came across my mind that that is sort of how the Jews uh, would have viewed the Old Covenant. This is kind of how they would have viewed God, really, in many ways. God was like running. Um, 
it's awful. It's terrible. It's scary. It's, it's something you don't really want to do, but you like the benefits of it. You like the effects of it. You like to lose weight. Everybody likes to. You, you don't, you don't want to go from size 30 to 32, and, and you, you want to stick with 30, because my dad always said you should be the same around as you are long, so I'm 30-30. That's, that's, that's proportionate, according to my dad. Anyway, um, you know, and so you, you want you want to you, you want to keep the style going, and you don't want to have to buy new clothes, and so you spend money. So you just get out there. And run. You like the benefits of running; it's good, but but man, you really don't like the process. It's like it's like it's awful process, and the memories you have of that process are 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 enough to scare you into maybe denying yourself that extra brownie, and you know, turning down a little bit of Domino's at midnight because it's like oh, I'll, I'll have to run if I eat that. And so it kind of like, you, it's one of those things that it's just this fear just kind of sinks in. And I think in some way, really, this is a bad analogy, but this is in some way, I think the way the Jews viewed God in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And this book is written to Hebrews. This book is written to former Jews who had come into relationship with Jesus. They come into Christianity. And, and now they're beginning to waver in their faith. And they're looking back to that old way. And what the writer is talking about, he's talking about the, 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 the fear that was associated with that old way. And he talks about how that old way could never really cleanse you of your conscience. And so, for instance, in the Old Testament, the, the priest that the writer is talking about in chapter 9, he's talking about a priest that would go in once a year into the most holy place. Well, he would prepare for about two days several ceremonial washings. Nobody could touch him for 24 hours before he went into the... I mean, it was, it was, it was, so, it was so big. It was such a big thing to step into the presence of God. In fact, when he would go in, he would, he would tie a bell around one of his ankles so that you hear the jingling as he's moving around doing all the things he's supposed to be doing. And then he'd tie a rope on the other ankle. And somebody would stand outside this very thick veil that separated one room from the other, would stand outside with the rope so that if the jingling stopped, they would pull the priest out. <laughs> and we laugh because that's so unlike church today. But, 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 but that's the way they approached God. It was like running. It was like, I might not make it around campus, so you might need to come pick me up, right? If I pass out and faint and vomit on the side of the road, just, just come pick me up. It's all good. Like, you know, like I, this might kill me. And that's, that's the way they approached God. It was like, it was, it was like man, he says, I don't, mm, mm, boy, I really hope. And, and that was just one guy. He was the only guy who was allowed in the presence of God. Everybody else stood outside and hoped he made it, hoped he succeeded. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling him, he says, look, even that one guy, when he went into that one place, that wasn't even the real holiest place of all. That was just down here on earth. And what happens is even that one place cannot cleanse you from your conscience. And what's funny, what's funny is I think we often do the same thing today. We often approach God in the same way. We often step into church almost with a rope on one ankle and we tell our buddies, hey, you might need to pull me out if God zaps me, you know. And uh, uh, I, I, Dallas, I think you're going to wait on the, that for just, give me 10, can I get 10 more minutes? Can I get 10 more minutes? Thanks. Nor, we, we tell them to come up at that time, but I'm just getting started, so I'm just going to give you guys your money's worth today. Um, we, we, we often approach God in that way. We kind of step into 
church with, 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 with a bell on one side and a rope on the other because we're not sure if God's mad at us or happy. We had, we had somebody helping us out in our house one time, and we told them what we did. They, they were delivering something. We told them, you know, hey, we are, you know, they, they, he asked us what we did for a living. I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he's, he's immediately got scared, and he's like, oh, well, I, God might zap me if I'm in here. He might strike me with lightning. And he was, he hurried, like, got stuff done and got out. So I tell everybody, I'm a pastor. All right, could you just snap to it? Let's get going. Um, no, but this is the way we often approach God. We're like, we're like, eh, I don't know. I don't know what he feels about me. Why? Because our conscience hasn't been cleansed. Because when your conscience condemns you, when your conscience says, wait a minute, we've sinned. Wait a minute, we've done wrong things. Wait a minute, we've had bad thoughts. We've had bad motives, bad intentions. Then we approach God in fear. We approach God with this fear that he's going to zap us because the only thing the old covenant could do is cleanse the outside. It could not cleanse the inside. So the, the person, the, the mind and the body, are, they're connected and everybody knows that. And they approach God wondering, hmm, is he going to see through this facade and is he going to zap me because of my conscience? And the passage that we read uh, yesterday to the ladies was, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. What that means is when you look back on your sins, you don't see your sins. Your conscience doesn't ache. You see Jesus. You see the covering of God's grace over your life. And this is the, this is, this is the offer of a cleansing of the conscience, first of all, from past sin. But also, notice what he says. He says, uh, the, the blood of Jesus can cleanse your conscience, not just from past sin, but also from dead works. I think it's in verse uh, verse nine. These things are symbolic, but they couldn't uh, cleanse with regard to to the conscience because they're concerned only with these with with these out outside externals. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not with the blood of goats, but the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean. How much more? This is verse fourteen. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God? Cleanse your conscience from dead works. It's interesting. He doesn't say cleanse your conscience from sin, even though that, that's implied. That's part of it. But oftentimes, we need our conscience cleansed from dead works. In other words, we need our conscience cleansed from the things that we think we do to make up for the things we did. <laughs> Does that make sense? The blood of Jesus, yes, it cleanses, it covers your past sins. But the, the, the purpose of the blood of Jesus is also to cleanse your conscience from the things you think make up for the stuff you did. And he cleans that stuff out too. For instance, yesterday uh, we were getting ready. We were still living at Noah's house. I was upstairs brushing my teeth. And Matt and Mike, I had given them each some cereal in a cup, uh, frosted chocolate mini wheats. Um, yeah, okay. Well, anyway... Um, it's all we had, and so I was like, here, here you go, guys. And so I'm, I'm up there, and then Madden comes up, and she says, Dad, and the way, the tone that she uses knows that I'm going to hear something bad. And so she says, Micah is not finishing his cereal. <laughs> and I've been there the whole time. Like you can, I, can, I can hear their discussion. She never talked to Micah about not finishing his cereal. She basically just saw that Micah had like left his cereal, gone sat down on the couch, and she saw an opportunity of something wrong that he had done. And so she goes, or that she thinks he had done. So she goes up the stairs and she tells me, Dad, Micah hasn't finished his cereal. And I said, well, why are you telling me this? <laughs> and she's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, well, did I say Micah had to finish his, his frosted chocolate 
like sugar, like pieces of sugar. Did, did, did I say that he had to finish? No. Well, then what's so wrong about him not finishing his, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so I began to talk to her about her heart. I said, girl, you're, you're wanting to accuse him of something. <laughs> Why are you trying to get him in trouble? And so we got to kind of had a good discussion about that. We don't, we, 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 we spank sometimes, but we mostly have really deep conversations because it's the heart that, that is wrong. She's wanting to get him in trouble for some reason. And, and, and I think we're similar to that, only we are like Micah and we tell on ourselves. So we don't finish our cereal. Then we go up and tell God, God, I didn't finish my cereal. It's just, I didn't finish it. I just don't know what I'm going to do. And God's like, I never told you you had to finish your cereal. Like, like this is the thing. When, when, when he deals with your conscience, when he deals with your past sins, leave them alone. He doesn't even see them anymore. He forgets about your sin. And when every time you bring it up, he's like, but wait a minute. Why did I? I never told you. I, what, what, what sin are you talking about? Why do you feel bad about, some, about not finishing your cereal? Trust me. Let me see. I'll pour it in the trash. You don't need that much sugar anyway. Like, you don't need your cereal. But we're so intent on making sure that we cover what we've done. We're not satisfied with what he's done. No, no, we got to add to that. We got to come up with something. Else. I got to finish my cereal because that's where. No, I never said that. Never said you had to make up for your sin. I never said you had to do something. This is what Jesus said. He, he, he told the Pharisees of his day, he said, go look up. Go look up in your Bible what it means when, when it says, I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. But we like sacrifice, don't we? We like something to do. We like something to do. Sacrifice is so tricky because God does call us to sacrifice. And several of you here have sacrificed just to be here, just to help us with this stage and put up lights and all that kind of and, and, and my, my wife and I sacrifice a lot. The danger of sacrifice, I've been sacrificing since I was a kid. The danger of sacrifice is sacrifice often la- leads to a sense of entitlement. Because you did something, you deserve something. You did something, you ought to be at a higher, better, deeper level. Something is better about what you did. The danger of sacrifice is it leads to a sense of entitlement. And this is what these Jews are saying. They're like, man, I really, I really miss sacrificing. I really miss killing those animals. As odd as, as, odd as it is, I really miss going to the tabernacle and the priest. And all that. Man, I, I miss, I miss because it gave me something to do. I can feel better about myself. And what the writer is saying, no, 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 the blood of Jesus Christ, it cleanses your past sin, but it also wipes away all that doing. And it says, mercy. (laughs) Mercy, you can't take credit for. Mercy, you can't pride yourself on. Mercy, you can't feel entitled. It's not about earning something. It's about receiving something. It's not about about an, an, an adherence to a law. It's about an inheritance from a father. It's not about law. It's about will. Which brings me to my second point in chapter 10. <laughs> I still got five more to go. Here we go. The will is better than the law. And I, and, and, and I will close with this. So, um, so yeah, uh, Dallas, that's awesome. Um, you know when, when he comes up that I actually am coming down for a closing. Uh, <laughs> he says that in order for a will or a testament or a covenant to be, to be activated, the testator has to die. He has to die, and he has to, to because you know, if, 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 you, if you write a will, if your dad writes a will, you don't get his stuff until he passes away. 
And so the writer of this will has to, has to die. And this is, this is what he's talking about in chapter 10 when he says that there is a will of God. Chapter 10, he says, he, says there, he did away with the former. He did away with the, the, the law of the covenant, and he, and he stepped in with God's will. God's will. God had a written will for you. And if you don't know where it is, I believe I found it. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. There's the written will of God. Most theologians call this the, the plan of God for the church, the plan of God for humanity. But John is, is looking up into heaven, and it says he saw in the right hand, that's his best hand, of him who sat on the throne, a scroll, this is a book, this is a scroll, written inside and on the back. That's, that's important because uh, mo- they would always write just on the inside of scrolls. In fact, they would be very large rolls of, of, of papyrus paper. Um, the book of Matthew, for instance, was like 23 feet long when you unscrolled it. <laughs> you unrolled it. You laid out the book of Matthew. You just roll it. It's all in papyrus paper. Well, well, this one is written on the inside and on the back. This is this mighty scroll that God's holding. He has so much good stuff for you. He has so much planned for you. It's been sealed with seven seals. That means it's completely sealed. They would do these wax seals on it so you couldn't open it without tearing it. And then they knew that somebody opened it wrongfully. So they, it's sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel, notice, somebody who should be able to open something like this, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy, that's the key word, to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. John is broken because nobody is finding out the plans of God for that generation, for that future generation. Nobody is opening it. He's broken. He can't believe that nobody can find out what God has to say about us. But one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Look, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. That's Jesus. He has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's his worthiness. (laughs) Having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And the following chapters throughout the book of Revelation is this opening of the scroll. And there's some, there's some negative stuff, but mostly it's about God's plan for you and for me. But here's the deal. A scroll, this is, this is a typical will. They would write it on a scroll. They would seal it with one seal. This one's sealed with seven. So the, the deal is the, the, the guy who writes it, the dad, you know, he has to die. He has to pass away. This is why Jesus had to be crucified, because God had to die in order to activate his will for you and I. He had to die in order to activate the will. The writer of the will had to die. But after the writer died, the oldest son would come and open the will. This is why he had to rise again on the third day. He had to die to activate the scroll. He had to rise again to access the scroll for you and I. So the oldest son, Jesus comes to the scroll and takes it from the Father, and he says, I'm worthy because, through my inheritance, not through, through my inheritance. I'm worthy to open the scroll. And he starts a brand new covenant, not based on adherence to law, but based on the will of your Father. 
It's not based on what is what you can do. It's based on who you are. You have been perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. That's past tense. Your, your sins can be covered, can be done away with. And sometimes I think we treat this amazing news as if it's like, well, God's just being nice. You know, really in the back of his mind, he's still wanting to do, you know, get me. No. The, 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 the curtain, right, that separated the presence of God from the presence of everybody else was symbolic of his body. And it was torn top to bottom. It was ripped apart. Do you really think he would deny you access into his presence? I mean, seriously, he, 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 his body was torn from top to, he was, he was shredded and ripped and crucified and beaten for you and for me. He's not looking for ways to crush you, to squish you, to keep you out. His will is already signed, sealed, and delivered. He died and he rose again in order for you and I to access it. We have every right. We have every right to be sons and daughters. We have every right to be children of God. You are not illegitimate. You are not adopted. You are a son by new birth. Stop coming up to your dad and telling him you didn't finish your cereal. Who cares about this cereal? <laughs> you, yeah, we know, we know, whatever. Your dad went through so much to give you what he wants for you. It's so much more than cereal. You didn't finish that marriage. You didn't finish that school. You didn't finish. There's so much stuff you didn't finish, and God's tired of hearing about it. There's a new place he wants you to step into. His plans for you are good. His love for you is good. He's done so much already, and all you have to do is let go of all that stuff and just say, okay, yes, I receive. I receive it. Hmm. <laughs> such, a, such a cutting of our pride, such a cutting away of stuff we can do. But this is the gospel. He desires mercy. He loves to show you mercy. If you'd like to receive his mercy today, we're just going to pray right now and just accept that. <laughs> we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you want to receive his mercy today, would you raise your hand with me and just say, I, I need to receive that. I got to, I, I want, maybe you've done it a thousand times before, but his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's based on his faithfulness. Lord, we come before you right now and we just, first of all, God, we just say we are sorry for trying to do it on our own. This must be the greatest offense to you. This must be so blasphemous that we would think we could add anything, that we would come up to you and tell you about not finishing our cereal. God, this must, this must really offend you, and so we are so sorry. We didn't know what we were doing. We were, we we're just kids. We're so sorry for trying to do this thing on our own. And we need you. We need mercy. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We never have. We never will. We are not in control. The greatest illusion of human history is, 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 is control. And we reject that. That is a lie. We are not in control. We can build borders around countries, but we are not in control. We can equip guys with guns, but we are not in control. We are re reliant on you. 
from Paris to New York, we are reliant on you. We are not in control. Hmm. We're not in control of our family. We're not in control of our lives. We need you. We need your mercy. And so we choose right now to receive your mercy. We choose to say about ourselves what you say about us. We are sons and daughters. We are not illegitimate children. We are not fearful. We come boldly before the throne of grace. We just walk right in. We don't come in fearfully wondering if it, it's not like running. Now we just walk and the weight comes right off. Now sanctification comes through a person, not through a process. You make us better. You make us mature. You make us right. <laughs> you are the author and the finisher of our faith. And so we place our faith in you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.